I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All. We talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, first topic is uh, one that you may not have heard of. It is this company called Allegro. Uh, Allegro just went public in the past day or two here. Um, they are a Polish platform business, uh, kind of like an eBay. Uh, you know, a product marketplace, as, as we would call it in our nomenclature, and the IPO is booming. Uh, they were up 10, 20% off of, uh, you know, what they expected to list their shares at, and they're up again now. And I think this is their second day of trading. They have 17 million unique uh, customers every month, and they are the dominant product marketplace in Poland. And I think some of those other, you know, neighboring smaller EU countries um, that, uh, maybe aren't as much of a focal point for really, um, either U S or, uh, Chinese, uh, product marketplaces that are, that are aggressively moving into Europe, U S kind of from Western European states and, and China and the Eastern European, they're kind of meeting in the middle here. Um, but, uh, yeah, product marketplaces, I think, is is another area that we've seen. We've seen like strong e-commerce in Europe, linear e-commerce. But for example, if you look at like grocery, uh, grocery in in Europe or the UK, you've seen um, a lot of like digital grocers. You've seen areas of kind of e-commerce where I would say some of maybe the incumbents are are farther ahead of where. Uh, the incumbents are in the United States, for example, but by and large, from a kind of European product, who's a who's a dominant European owned, you know, European found founded product marketplace. You know, I think this is one one of those great stories. Founded in 1999, so 20 plus years later, um, they're IPOing, and um, you know, 80% of, uh, I guess, respondents in this e-commerce poll or survey in Poland said that, you know, Allegro is their preferred brand for e-commerce. And I think now they're starting to just deepen their their presence in Poland and go into other product markets and then go into some other adjacent territories. It's different than an Amazon model this thing's talking about, but it's still a product marketplace. Hence why I kind of compare it more to an eBay or maybe kind of like a Rakuten, right? Putting a little bit more emphasis on the seller. In a situation where several sellers are offering the same products, each seller will provide its product card. So when a buyer searches for the particular product, there are several cards displayed, each from different sellers, right? Where Amazon is centralizing that product catalog, standardizing the product, and then the sellers are basically relegated to just competing on price. A Rakuten and eBay, you know, these are much more kind of seller-friendly marketplace models, uh, which is where I think this would fit. They were supposed to open at uh, 43, whatever Polish dollars a share. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word. And it opened at 65 and then climbed to 71. It's now at about 80. The opening surge pushed the value of Allegro's equity to over 17 billion US dollars, making it Poland's largest listed company. And, uh, you know, they had to like delay trading for 15 minutes because the Poland exchange was just inundated with orders. I think it's a, I think it's a cool company. Um, and, uh, again, you know, back on this narrative, we spoke about the Spotify founders billion euro donation to try and breed more European innovation. Um, 
a great example here. A a, a Polish founded 1999 product marketplace. Now the largest company in Poland listed, uh, at least listed company. Pretty strong growth prospects here. So that will be interesting to follow. So the next topic is this Disney Plus business. Um, we all know the story. Okay, thanks Bloomberg for signing me out. Um, Bloomberg, uh, not Bloomberg, Disney Plus. Disney hired Bob, Bob Pacek as the CEO of Disney, and he came out of their parks division. And the guy who was running, Kevin Mayer, who went to TikTok for a very brief period of time, Kevin was the guy heading up Disney+. Plus. Kevin was the guy quarterbacking the deals to buy Marvel and Lucasfilm, Star Wars. Kevin left because he wanted the CEO job. Bob, you know, Bob number two, not Bob Iger, Bob P, uh, got the job from the parks division. And uh, now... They he did a reorg. I think the reorg is smart. The reorg basically just gives more power and and streamlines the flow and distribution of content, so that when you make content, there there was a conflict inside of Disney, right? I'd have the movie division, which makes the movie, but that movie division has its own P and L, separated from whatever doing with streaming or parks or other things, right? So now that content's kind of being created in a silo. That content now needs to be distributed to theaters and needs to go pay-per-view and all right and then all these other things. They have their own PL. So what he did is he streamlined it. So what this should do is make streaming uh, as as the center focus of the business. Shouldn't it should get rid of that conflict, right? It should say, hey, we're gonna make content and then we're gonna monetize it through streaming, through our parks, through merchandise. It's kind of putting content at the center of it, but making sure that streaming and these other now core businesses inside of Disney are able to successfully monetize that. And the content is not as siloed as it previously was. A smart decision. Here is what is weird to me about what's going on with this whole Disney news. So um, so Bob comes out of the parks. Okay. Uh, he's not a streaming guy. He's not the content deal-making guy that Kevin was. Okay. Um, fine. Smart reorg by Bob, Bob P. And then deeper in this Bloomberg article, it goes, a new star, Kareem Daniel, who previously headed up consumer products within the theme park division. Hmm. I bet Bob knows Kareem pretty well. Will now take over distribution for the Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu streaming services. Riddle me that, right? The thing that gave me confidence in Disney's ability to execute was that I had heard, you know, that Kevin had a really strong team underneath him. So yes, Kevin is leaving, but he has strong lieutenants uh, to, you know, to, 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 to carry the torch forward. This is what's super bizarre to me, right? You're reorging the company and now you're bringing in your guy, Kareem Daniel, from Parks to oversee what's going on with streaming and Disney+. Plus. How does that make any sense? Why are you putting both yourself as Bob Pacek and Kareem as the heads of the business that you don't know, understand anything about? That's what's bizarre to me about this. Um, so... You know, from from a media news headline standpoint, 
it sounds good. It sounds right. It, it probably came from a management consultant. From an execution standpoint and a personnel standpoint, that is at the end of the day what's going to make or break whether or not you can execute on the strategy. Strategy seems right. That's great. How do you execute? That's the challenge. And from a personnel standpoint, I just, I just don't see the people. I don't see the people with the experience that are quarterbacking these things. That's what's bizarre to me, right? Whereas AT&T, AT&T brings in their digital guy, Jason Keelar, I think is his name, former CEO of uh, Hulu. This guy gets digital streaming. This guy gets it. He wants to disrupt the whole industry. AT&T brings that guy in to head up Time Warner. Okay, that is a good personnel move. These don't seem like good personnel moves. They seem like good organizational, you know, structure decisions, but the personnel moves completely confounding to me. Okay. Next one is a topic very near and dear to my heart, which is um US and Chinese tech monopoly regulation. <laughs> so, um, what's happening is US explores curbs on Ant Group and Tencent payment systems. Oh, oh, it makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. Great decision. Horrible journalism. Why is it horrible journalism? Well, I'll show you. Ant's smart, right? Ant knows the writings on the wall. Here's the statement Ant said. Ant Group said it in a statement that it is unaware of any administration discussions about, you know, U.S. administration sanctioning them and that it's, quote, business is primarily in China and we are excited about our growth prospects in the Chinese market. This is where, strategically, what the U.S. needs to do, this is what the U.S. needs to do is keep the Chinese tech monopolies relegated to China and then other other kind of totalitarian communist regimes that want to play nice with China, right? These are going to be other countries that are using Huawei, that are um, adopting China's military technology, that is um, adopting China's great firewall technology to regulate their citizens and patrol every single thing they do in every moment of every day. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Okay, here's the bad reporting. Imposing restrictions on Ant Group, a crown jewel of the world's second largest economy, would mark a major escalation in the Trump administration's economic and political confrontation with Beijing. Discussions around Ant Group and Tencent's payment platforms have been held up in part by debate over what authority the government would use to restrict the companies and how quickly any measures could be uh, implemented. And there are concerns that the actions could be swatted down in court. One option would be to use authorities granted under a 2019 order to protect the digital supply chain. That would likely add weeks. A speedier alternative would be to draft a new ex or executive order along the lines of what uh, the Trump administration did with TikTok and Tencent's WeChat. That course has its risks. Courts have recently granted injunctions halting the administration's bids to ban TikTok and WeChat, uh, saying the White House may have exceeded its authority in granting a temporary reprieve to the app's from being removed from U.S. digital stores. You know, as a journalist, what you should be doing is saying, yeah, okay, these courts did grant a temporary reprieve. What precedent does the, you know, does the Trump administration have to take this ruling? Are they within their boundaries? And, and right, is, is, are these temporary court 
injunctions actually going to succeed in preventing the U.S. from banning these apps, or will it be futile? And if you were actually a good journalist, what you would find is that it's the latter. It's futile. Trump administration is absolutely, whether and it doesn't matter what administration, the, the power of the executive branch absolutely lies uh, in the executive branch to ban foreign companies from operating in the United States. Um, you don't even need to go as detailed as what has been gone in terms of explaining why things like TikTok and WeChat uh, were banned. But um, these things will absolutely be upheld. You just have courts that, I don't know why they take these uh, the opposite opinion, but you know, it's entirely appropriate and within the power. And then basically you have another third to this article, I'll spare you, that just goes on and on and on about, oh, well, you know, if, if that doesn't work, then what else should be done? Uh, one administration official thinks it would have an easier time in the courts if it went that route because... While TikTok and WeChat bans were challenged on free speech grounds, there'd be no such concern with Alipay and the Tencent payment services. I mean, there's just no mention that these injunctions are basically uh, warrantless and will be defeated as they go up through the ranks of the court system. Because the power is there, it's been there, it's been shown to have been there in the past and will continue to be there in the future. And then the the Treasury Department could put them on the special specially designated national list, a move that would make them all but radioactive for any US company to do business with them. Anyway, a big chunk of this was basically saying, "Whoa, well, we don't know how that this ban would be put into place." The point is the US government and particularly the financial system, the US government has unbridled power to basically ban just about any actor from touching I mean, the U.S. government touches just about every aspect of the financial system in the entire world, except for, you know, places, China and other totalitarian communist regimes. So basically, in any of those territories, U.S. government has ample resources to prevent Chinese tech monopolies in the payment apps and financial services realm like Alipay and uh, um, Alipay slash Ant Group and um, what uh, WeChat's doing here from from spreading. So uh, it makes complete sense. I think this is this is the as we've seen with TikTok and WeChat, it's the beginning of a role reversal in foreign policy as we look at our relations with China, Chinese tech monopolies, and that they are just purely an extension of the CCP. Um not to say that our U.S. tech monopolies are, are shining beacons of freedom and free speech, as they should be, but unfortunately are not uh, in recent times. But um, we've already talked about that a lot. I'm sure it'll come up again in the future. The next point here is about going back to Huawei. So um, this article here, October 10th, thanks to Trump, China's Huawei is dying. We've talked about Huawei many times on the show and how, um, again, you had a lot of these journalists that would say, oh, well, Huawei is going to be okay. You know, if I, I did this Google, look, Huawei made 2019 sales. Look at the topics of the headlines. Huawei has already sold a million Mate 30s before international sales begin, September 30th, 2019. Positive, right? Um, Huawei phones are still red hot in China. But the Google app ban is hurting sales overseas. 
Huawei says it can sell 20 million Mate phones without Google's help. Huawei sales accelerate as it shifts 200 million smartphones. Shifts or ships? I don't know. Is that a typo? In 2019. Huawei shipped over 240 million phones in 2019. I mean, there's just, I don't know, there's just no independent objective thinking with these, with these media publications anymore. When you want to really look at the situation and say, oh, well, um, what is Huawei's phone business optimistic? You know, is anyone optimistic on the outlook for what Huawei's phone business is going to do? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be any any reasonable person who's actually following what this what that Huawei ban did where they couldn't use Android. I mean you can't use Android. How do you have a smartphone business where you can't use the only operating system available to make phones, right? You can't use iOS, that's Apple's. So it's literally just Android. You can't use Android. How would you ever expect why would you ever have an optimistic upbeat title when talking about this company's phone business that can't use Android, right? Like, why would you ever do that? From that article that I was just showing uh, that China's Huawei is dying. Again, let's be clear. Huawei's primary business is telecom infrastructure. It's those big, um, you know, the big cell phone towers, the 5G infrastructure. That's their primary uh, business. That is the thing where when you talk about kind of the, the Huawei ban, why the Huawei ban was so pertinent was because they were actually installing the towers and the infrastructure, and then they can eavesdrop into everything that's going through their infrastructure. Hmm, surprise, surprise. Um, the phone business was just kind of like a, a side business that they spun up and started to become a real business. But anyway, that this recent article from just October of, uh, you know, of 2020 says... Sales estimates reflect the exhaustion of inventory. Huawei is estimated it will ship 50 million handsets next year. That is down from both the 190 million sets analysts had originally predicted for the year and the 240 million sets it sold last year. Was this predictable? Just about as predictable that the sun will rise in the morning and then set around seven o'clock. It's going to happen. When Huawei gets Android banned from its smartphones, there is no way the business can be viable. We covered this so many times on the show. There is no way Huawei can make their own operating system, even with all of the resources of the Chinese government behind it. Actually, they were trying to do some pretty crafty things. They were trying to put an alliance together amongst the different Chinese smartphone manufacturers. That could have been a real comeback story. If they were to get supply, because because these Chinese um, like ZTE and a couple of the other manufacturers account for such a large share of the um, at, at least the Android smartphone market in Europe, for example, that it, if they were to get all the smartphone manuf- Chinese smartphone manufacturers, I think they would have had over over well over fifty percent market share in China, and then and then you could try and launch your own operating system. It's still a very risky move. Uh, you have to go get all these app developers on board. And Huawei has tried to do that too. They were trying to like put a fund together to get app developers. Just again, I mean, it's the name of the show, winner take all. You can't have three winners. You have two, iOS and Android. And and maybe with all the resources of the Chinese government, with the three largest Chinese smartphone manufacturers in the world, 
and a big fund, like a multi-billion dollar fund to incentivize app developers to make their apps work on yet a third operating system? Maybe. And huge losses, by the way, because those smartphone manufacturers are going to be, they're going to have to shut down their whole Android business, right? So it's not like you're just going to have an even swap, right? You're going to, there's going to be a lot of pain for at least a few years while, you know, um, consumers want to stick with Android and, and go to, you know, a Korean smartphone manufacturer, which are very capable smartphone manufacturers. So you got a few decks stacked against you here. Yet, if, if you're just kind of an unassuming viewer reading through um, top media journalists' predictions on the, the rosy outlook for Huawei, man, you would not have seen this coming. Uh, when the writing has been on the wall for a long, long time. Um, crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay. Amazon Prime Day is on October 13th and 14th. And I like this article. I like this site a lot. I, I, I feature this site a few times. Marketplace Pulse, uninspiring, record-breaking Prime Day 2020. Um, and basically, you know, they say is, where's the innovation, Amazon? And and I would actually tend to agree with the narrative in this article because, you know, what it's essentially getting at is if you look, look at China, look at Chinese product marketplaces like what Alibaba is doing. I mean, there is so much innovation within the concept of e-commerce. And you don't really see that happening with Amazon, right? Like the Amazon purchasing experiences largely remain unchanged for the past number of years, right? I mean, the site looks pretty much the same. What have they been doing? They've been getting you stuff faster. They've been, they have been making moves right around like Alexa, um, AWS, obviously, Twitch, and, you know, other kind of side businesses. But when you look at Amazon's core product, what have they been doing? Right? I mean, they've been making a bunch of money on ads and they've been doing a lot of their own white label, you know, 1P, you know, sales and, and, and that kind of stuff. But when you look internationally, you see things like live streaming just blowing up, right? Especially now with COVID. You see Alibaba um, doing huge promos, right? Where you have retail stores that are doing live streams with their consumers as a way to still kind of survive in a COVID era. You see so much innovation happening with with video and and other kind of social networks and personalization that is starting to change the buying experience, right? Um, we're seeing Instagram take some pretty interesting moves with how they're approaching e-commerce. Uh, Pinterest falling, I'd say, pretty far behind in what they should have been doing in e-commerce, which uh, could have been a lot more than what they're doing today. But yeah, I mean, where is Amazon, right? It just, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, it's not as bad as Craigslist, but I mean, it's like, it's kind of the, just the same website. There's just more products, better fulfillment, and they make more money on ads. I'm overgeneralizing here, but I, I, I'm not seeing... I mean, they, they I guess they have been doing some stuff to like try and test QVC style models, but it just seems that they could be doing a lot more creative, innovative tests, uh, right? It's a day one company. Every day is a new day for Amazon. So where is that? You know, we're going to we're going to fail fast. We're going to try a bunch of new stuff for buying products and, you know, help creatives get interesting. If you look at other markets, particularly China, I would I would say their level of kind of e-commerce product marketplace innovation 
and the trends that are happening there are, are definitely uh, farther ahead of, of where we're at in the U.S. So I wouldn't say Amazon's really helping out that too much. But I'm sure it'll be another record breaker. Let's see where the stats come in shortly here. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining. Talk to you soon.